you're okay like that? Everybody's gonna have a neck ache by the end of the evening. Okay. Huh? Yeah. No, I, I we we talked about me talking from different places, but um, this felt the most central. From there, the problem is um, that um, it's not as good for me. It's not as good. It's not as good. <laughs> the sponsor, the sponsors told me that they're going to withdraw all of their funding. Right. By, uh, they are okay. like that. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Um, okay. Let me. Um, let me focus on a couple of core points. We have about a half hour, okay? So it goes like this. Um, number one has to do with the whole concept that when it comes to spiritual connection, one size doesn't fit all. Pretty obvious, but we have to remind ourselves of that. So everybody in this room, if you think about, for example, What's your number one peak spiritual moment? When have you felt most connected spiritually? Or think about that for your children, uh, but certainly for yourselves. And my guess is that if we, do you even know the answer to that about your spouse, your, your spouses, your spice? It's a plural spouse. What's the, in other words, like do you even, have you even talked about it? Maybe you should turn to each other, turn towards each other. And ask about, um, ask what, what's your, do you know what your peak spiritual moments are? No, so you don't necessarily talk about that. You probably know it, but, um, <laughs> but, um, but um, it's, uh, oh, maybe we should do that for a while. Everybody, look at that. <laughs> See what you said. So why don't you two take a few minutes, turn to each other, and ask me to talk about your peak spiritual moments. Very well done. Huh? Very well done. Yes, I like that. I like that. Thank you, everybody. It's been a pleasure being here. Um, Friday night. Friday night? Okay. At the hotel. Friday night at the hotel. It's, it's often interesting kind of thing. Kind of things. Okay. I like that. Listen to what, listen to what the Joseph Lublin said. Which I think to me is the model for it, okay? Because he, he got it right on, okay? He said, it's impossible to tell people what way they should take in connecting to God. For one way to serve God is through learning, another through prayer, another through fasting, and it's still another through eating, my personal favorite, okay? Um, everyone should carefully observe what way his heart draws him to, and then choose his way with all his strength. And that's, that's the bottom line. And, and we have to be careful about it because sometimes it may seem to us that our kids are a little FBR-ish or um, JFK-ish or, you know, all, the, all those initials on the title. Who came up with the titles? Was that you? It's very good. That's very good. It's like the, some of the best titles I've ever seen. That's a gift. That's a gift. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, uh, there's a guy, does anybody know Rabbi Einhorn in California? Anybody ever had connections with him? He's like the title genius for YU. So rabbis all over the world call him, but I'm going to let your name out. Oh! Okay. So, um, anyway. Um, and... So the first question to ask yourself when you're trying either to connect yourself 
or to connect as a family or to reach your children is what connects them. And it's, it's really true. Some of your kid, kids are inherently spiritual. But if you have to speak their language, you have to figure out what's the transcendent for them. So for some people, it's going to be nature. And for some people, it's going to be being at the Kotel. And for some people, it's going to be a totally different kind of thing. I want to add another dimension just in terms of one of the challenges, and that's that recent research in the last decade has shown how important biology is to spiritual connection. It turns out at least half of the variance in terms of what gives birth to spirituality is, um, is genetically and biologically driven. There's a guy at Harvard, a well-known geneticist by the name of Dr. Hamer, and he had an incredible study, and I'll tell you a vignette about this study. He looks at identical twins reared apart, Okay, from birth they were reared apart. Um, and he then, as adults, gets a hold of them and he gives them tests of religious and spiritual connection to see how much is tied to the biology and the genetics and how much is tied to environment. And I'll just tell you about one set of twins he had. He had a set of twins. One was raised as an Orthodox Jew in Borough Park. His identical twin was raised as a member of Hitler, Hitler Youth in wartime Germany. He gets this twin pair as adults, as adults, and he looks at what's their current level of spirituality. Spirituality has nothing to do with the content. It's not, you know, whether or not you're saying Moda'ani or walking out during Haftarah to go to Kiddush Club. I know, do you have Kiddush Club here? No, no, no. 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 I noticed that. This, I noticed that. I come from a neighborhood where the buy-in to Kiddush Club is $5,000. So um, only a few people could afford Kiddush Club. Okay, but then I was in a, I was in a neighbor, I oh, forget, I, I can go off on Kiddush Clubs. I can go off on Kiddush Clubs for a while. It's. Um, very interesting topic, but um, but um, but the bottom line, the bo the bottom line is that sometimes our kids are just not wired in a way that they connect easily to God. Okay, that doesn't mean we can't reach them. Actually, still enough of the variance is tied to educators and parenting. I think you could reach anybody. It's just a matter of figuring out how to connect to them. So, that, so point number one is the point of the multiplicity of coping. We got that? You don't get it? Well, the study. The study. About the twins. The study about the twins. No, that's it. The study shows that most of what, more than half of what goes into spiritual connection is, um, is genetically and is, is, is basically biologically driven but a very high percentage of the rest of the variance is environmental. So there's always a role for parents to override the biologic setting. That's all. That's, that's what, what Dr. Hammer. What happened with that set of twins, the Hitler, Riesbeck? Oh, when they were tested? Yeah. You mean, I forgot, I forgot a little detail like the punchline. You notice I knew that. All Shabbos, all Shabbos, I've been wow. missing the punchlines on purpose. The very first talk, I talked about desirable difficulties. And I talked about any other moment I'll deliver Torah and Kenneth Shabbat You only really master your learning if you struggle. So I've been driving people crazy by saying I have five points I want to make, and then I make four. Okay, or uh, 
the worst is when I talk about the, um, the theme of this talk is the three C's, coping, connection, and oh, we'll get to it later, and then I never get to it. Okay, and then you struggle with it and you remember coping and connection, which is my real goal. I'm, I'm only, I, no, so, no, so the end of it is they, they had identical scores with totally different content. They were in exactly the same place, okay? They had the same level of spiritual connection even though the, in one case it was um, this guy who was shaped by growing up as a member of Hitler Youth, and in another case it was the guy who was shaped by growing up as an Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn. So it's, 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 it's fascinating. But what I take from that, and even more importantly, is we still could shape it. We still could shape it. So that's point one. We're good with point one? Yes. Remember, that's called Chosev Lublin, okay? Point two, is called crashing through the woods. And that's that the nature of spiritual connection, the nature of spirituality, is all, it's all about connection. It's all about connection. Anything that fosters connection is gonna foster spirituality. Anything that fosters alienation, which I'm gonna talk about in a few minutes, is gonna foster the opposite. So I'm gonna read to you what happens when you try to push your kids, like hurry up and have kavana, or hurry up and learn, and hurry up and connect to God, okay? When you try, when you get into power struggles over religion with kids, or let's say there's a couple fighting over religious connection, or there's a divorce, and one parent is far more observant than the other, okay? So all those things have a, an incredibly um, uh, poignant kind of um, challenge for us who are raising children or are trying to develop our own spirituality. So listen to this, it's from a non-Jewish source. It's called Crashing Through the Woods. One of the major authors in the secular world on spirituality. And it gets to the heart of this. Here's what he says, okay? This is from um, Parker Posey. If we want to support each other's inner lives, we must remember a simple truth. The human soul does not want to be fixed. It wants simply to be seen and heard. If we want to see and hear a person's soul, there's another truth. We must remember the soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, and yet shy. When we go crashing through the woods, shouting for it to come out so we could help it, the soul will stay in hiding. But if we're willing to sit quietly and wait for a while, the soul may show itself. And we probably will experience this to a certain extent. You know, spirituality and spiritual high points or even connecting to our kids, it happens sometimes when we least expect it, but it happens through the connection. It happens through spending time with them. It happens through accepting them and finding whatever the alchemy, whatever the, the, the mix is of what connects their souls. And it's gonna change over time. Are you in the same place religiously and spiritually today as you were 10 years from now? No, of course not. And 10 years from now, will you be in the same place? I hope not. I hope there, there's gonna be growth, okay? And there's gonna be development. But the key is all of that will happen if we just create a space that nourishes kids' neshamas, okay? So that's point number two, is the crashing through the woods. You know, the danger of coercion, the danger of power struggles, and what happens with that. Next thing 
next comes with the challenge of davening, which is very, very hard. You know, there's a great story about the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov, a bunch of his chassidim come running to him and say, Rebbe, we have, we, there's a guy in town who's selling amulets, selling kamiyas, that will, um, for almost anything. And he's getting a lot of money for them. And we don't, want to know, is he a charlatan? Do we have to run him out of town? Or is he a guy that, that could really provide a valuable service? You know? So uh, Baal Shem Tov says there's one sure way to know. The one sure way to know is ask him if he has a kamiya for um, guaranteeing that you'll have good kavana during davening. And if he says yes, throw him out of town. Okay? Listen to this unbelievable Yerushalmi. Because it, it, it gets to some of the challenge. I'm not saying that there aren't times that we all have good kavana, but it's often a struggle for us, so it's certainly going to be a struggle for our kids. Listen to this unbelievable Gemara. I'll read it in English instead of, um, instead of in Hebrew. Rabchia said, I never concentrated during davening in all my days. Once, I tried to concentrate, but I kept thinking about who will meet the king first? Like, what's the hierarchy in terms of the royal um, kind of protocol? The Arkafta, a Persian high official, or the Reish Galusa? That's what he says he thought about during Shemun Ezra. That's Rebchia. Okay? Rebchia, who, by the way, in other Gemaras, was so powerful when he would daven for, for rain that they had to stop him from davening because it was going to flood the whole world and destroy the world. Same Rebchia says, no, I, have, I, I also have a hard time concentrating. I'm thinking about these other things. Shmuel, the famous Shmuel, we all know Shmuel, right? Shmuel said, you know what I do during Shemun Esrei? I count the clouds. I count the clouds. Now, there's another way of thinking about this. Gemara, I'm not saying we don't, shouldn't be taking it quite literally. Some people say that those are mindfulness techniques and whatever. But in some ways, when we um, allow for failure, when we allow, not for failure, when we allow for struggle, and we present our kids with the struggles that some of our great rabbis had, I think it paradoxically frees us up. When we allow for imperfection and we, we, we allow for struggle. Next, Rabun Barchia, the son of Rabchia, also um, who's mentioned in the Gemara as having very powerful abilities in his tefillah, he said, I count the layers of st- stones in the wall while I dab in Shmanes, right? Okay, again, could be a mindfulness technique. More likely, it's the simple shot is he counts the layers of stones. Okay? And Ramanai, this is my personal favorite, I'm grateful to my head because it bows by itself when I reach Modem. Okay? So people are going to now. Do we teach this to our kids? Probably not. But, and does it mean that none of us are able to have truly meaningful times during davening? Of course we, of course we can, you know? And it's very hard for our kids because our kids don't have the same associations we have. So for example, when I say okay? And I'm thinking about some family members who may be struggling with what might be, let's say, early stages of Alzheimer's, okay? I say it very differently, with very different kavana than I did when I was a teenager. 
When I say modim and talk about gratitude, that's like golden for me because it means it's a, I, 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 I could appreciate things that I didn't have the associations to appreciate them when I was younger. We have to remember our kids don't have those associations. We could help them get them. We could help them by connecting it to their lives, but it's a gradual educational thing. And the key thing is, if you want to know how your kids are going to daven, look at how you daven. That's the best predictor. It's how do we, how do we model? How do we model? Okay, it's parents as mashbiyim, which is the Hebrew word for a ramp. We're not so much educators as we are human ramps. It's what we roll down. When, when um, I daven in a shul for many years, where um, the front of the shul, there were um, two people who sat in prominent seats. One was so out of control in his talking during davening, even on the Yom Noraim, that he and his son would talk through Kedusha at Unisana Tokev. Throughout Kedusha, the holiest time of the Jewish year, they were talking and talking and talking. It's not shocking to me that now that he has grandchildren and even great-grandchildren, they're doing the same thing. And then one row over are, you know, a set of parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who have been davening with amazing kavana, and their children are davening with amazing kavana, and their grandchildren are their great-grandchildren. You just see it happening. There's nothing, there's nothing surprising about it. But you have to remember, you're playing for keeps. As you have children, you're much more likely playing for keeps. Listen to this, um, listen to this uh, uh, quote from a quick story from Tolstoy, okay? Quick story from Tolstoy, don't worry, it's not, Tolstoy writes some long stuff, this is one of the shorter, short stories. Anybody, anybody know this? The old grandfather and the grandson. Anybody know this? It's a, it's a very interesting short story. The grandfather had become very old. His legs wouldn't go. His eyes didn't see, his ears didn't hear, he had no teeth, and when he ate, the food dripped from his mouth. The son and daughter-in-law stopped setting a place for him at the table and gave him supper in back of the stove. Once, they brought dinner down to him in a cup. The old man wanted to move the cup and dropped and broke it. The daughter-in-law began to grumble at the old man for spoiling everything in the house and breaking the cups and said that she would now give him dinner in a dishpan. The old man only sighed, said nothing. Once, the husband and wife were staying at home and watching their small son playing on the floor with some wooden planks. He was building something. Father asked, what is it that you're doing, Misha? And Misha said, dear father, I'm making a dishpan so that when you and dear mother become old, you may be fed from this dishpan, okay? The husband and wife looked at one another, began to weep. They became ashamed of so offending the old man. And from then on, seated him at the table and waited on him. We have to keep that in mind, because when it comes to the spiritual, that's what we really model, often without even knowing it, often invisibly. It's also the spirituality of imperfection. How do we handle mistakes? How do we handle mistakes? Kids, when we did a study for Abichai of over 2,000 kids in five parts of the United States, 
in modern Orthodox schools, asking them, what are your main spiritual connectors? And what are your main spiritual alienators? Apologetics, okay? Meaning when they were constantly making excuses um, about not owning up to the fact that some of the, some of the teachers and leaders aren't always perfect. Okay, apologetics was always a turnoff, but a connector was when we owned up to our mistakes. Again, I just said the last cottage for my father a couple of hours ago. So I'm going to share with you a story about my father. I don't think I shared it with this group. Did I share you about, um, about um, failing better? That's, that story with some of you? Not good. Okay, I don't think I did. Listen to this story. Okay, because uh, for me it's a powerful story. Um, when my father turned 95, he'd been the rabbi of the White Shoal and Rabbi Emeritus for 95 years. And the show was 95 years old, okay? So um, they make a big dinner in his honor. A huge dinner, very nice, fancy dinner. And um, they asked him to give a speech. And he stayed, thank God, very sharp right to the end. Even though physically he was a mess, but he was extremely sharp. So the speech he gives is, he says, now that I'm a really old guy, he says, my dream is, and he quotes some secular source, is to keep on failing, but to learn how to fail better. He said, the older you get, the more you realize that where wisdom comes from is knowing how to fail. He says, I want to fail and fail and fail with whatever time I have left, but I want to learn how to, basically, how to mess up better. I want to learn how to face my imperfections. I want to learn how to see what I messed up so I could apologize to people. I want to learn basically how to be better at failure in life. And it hit a very responsive chord. It actually went a little viral, um, you know, in, in, a, in a variety of places. But what was fascinating about it is that many people connected to it very strongly. So at the Shiva for him, 11 months ago today, at the Shiva, um, a lot of people were telling me how he enacted the failure thing. And I'll just share with you one story, because it has, to me, it's about the spirituality of imperfection. Kids connect very well when they know that we're giving them space to mess up, and when we respond to their mess ups in a way that's calm, and sometimes we may even have to have consequences for them. Consequences have to be logical, unemotional, and brief but to embrace the fact of mess-ups as a source of growth. So listen to this, to what one guy tells me. The White Shul has something like 10 minyanim, you know, on Yom Menorah and every day. It's like my father just called a mall. It's all these connected wings of buildings. It's a very interesting place. A lot happening. I don't know how many dafyomis, how many, whatever. It's like a real mall. Your shul is uh, very similar in terms of there being a tremendous amount going on. But the White Shoal is, uh, is uh, very, uh, very much like that. So the guy who is the Baltokea, who blew the chauffeur in the biggest minion there, over a thousand people, I think, in that minion, or something, somebody told me. I don't really know if it's that many, whatever it is. So he comes to me at the ship. He says, you know, your father talked about failing. He said, let me tell you a story. And almost every story I heard, I had never heard before. He said... I burned out from blowing shofar. He says, you know what it is to have the responsibility for blowing shofar on the holiest day of the year? And if you mess up, like all these people, he says, I just couldn't handle it anymore. I burned out, I go to your father, I serve a pelkovitz, I quit. 
And he said, your father had a weird response. He said, fine, it's fine that you quit, but um, did I share this with you at all, this story? Good, okay, good. So he said, I'm sorry, I said it somewhere recently, so I just wanted to make sure. He said, I'd give you a different failure story. I'm filled with failure stories, okay? <laughs> um, so he says, I quit. Um, if I says, fine, but I just want you to do me a favor. Once a week or twice a week, let's get together and we're gonna learn Hilchos Tkiya Shofar, the laws of blowing the shofar. So we um, get together a couple times a week and we learn how to blow a shofar. I mean, no sense, man, just quit. But you don't mess with your father. He's an old wise man. Everybody listens to what he says. So I, I humored him. After a month or two of this, it's Elul. So your father says, look, let me tell you what I've been preparing you for. I want to give a class. It's Elul time on Hilchos Takiya Shofar for the whole shul. We're going to give a class, and your job is, I'm going to like go through a halacha, and I want you to illustrate for everybody how to mess up that call of the shofar. Here's how to do it wrong. This guy's the expert in how to do it wrong. Okay? We've been working on it. He knows how to do it wrong. <coughs> so they have the shear, and it's a huge turnout, the guy says. And he says, your father starts to shear. And he says, whatever the coal is. And my job was to mess it up, to make the point. He said, I couldn't make a mistake. As, as much as I tried, I could have messed it up. He says, that Rosh Hashanah, I was back to blowing shofar. I've been blowing it ever since. There's story after story like that, but it's the idea. Why am I calling that? I know it's a weird story, I know. But it's the spirituality of imperfection. Spirituality of imperfection. What it's about is that to the extent that we're vulnerable with our children and we let them know that sometimes we make mistakes and sometimes we even apologize. Not in a way that undermines their respect for us, but we apologize. You know, I really, I'm so sorry. I just, I just, um, I've, been, I've been a little irritable lately. I've been under a lot of pressure. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna work harder. You model imperfection. You model imperfection with each other or even in public. You know, where you apologize to uh, somebody who's, uh, to your Uber driver because you, um, I don't know, you spilled some Starbucks coffee on, on his or her carpet, or whatever it might be. When you do that, that's how your kids learn. And it's very much tied to spiritual connection in our research. Time after time after time, kids told us that that is a spiritual connector. Okay? So that's, the, that's that point. Let me move on. I want to tell a couple of stories before I move on. I want to make sure that I make the core points. So we already did Jose Lublin, multiple pathways, right? We already did danger of coercion. We did um, crashing through the woods. We already did the challenge of davening and Balshemtov's Kamiya for having Kavana. That you can't, that this is a challenge that people have. We have to recognize the challenge. And some, sometimes, paradoxically, by recognizing the challenge, it frees us up to have more kavana. And let me just um, end with, um, I have so much I could talk about, but I can't. So let me, let me end with, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, civility, civility and, and indecision along, along the lines of making mistakes. I'll just do a minute on it. Um, we're living in a world of people being very certain and people being angry at each other. 
and there not being enough tolerance of uncertainty. The Torah was given in the Arafel. The Torah was given in the fog. Throughout the Torah, throughout the Gemara, people aren't so sure of the answer to things, okay? So very often in the Gemara, there's a debate and a question, and how does the Gemara leave it? Kasha, it's a question, we don't know the answer. Tiyufta, you, 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 you disproved me, but I'll live with the fact that I've been, that, 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 that um, it's a good question. Teku, we're not gonna really know the answer to this till the Mashiach comes. And over and over and over again, we learn that it's okay to not know. We learn that the truth lies. Moshe, as Rav Nachman explains in a beautiful essay, that I don't want to take the time to read, but Rav Nachman explains that the Torah was given in the fog. Moshe nigashel ha-rafel, while B'nai Israel pulled back. And that's where God was. God was in the mist. And in today's world, in today's world, all too often, you turn on CNN, you turn on Fox, you turn on the Israeli news channels, you turn on any news channel from any part of the spectrum, MSNBC or it could be anything, and you see people with a tremendous amount of certainty, tremendous certainty. And the reality is the world, things aren't so certain. Facts are often open to different interpretations. And that disconnects kids. Kids need to know that we need to have respect for one another and we need to somehow figure out a way to um, show respect, especially online, especially in terms of onas, dvarim, kinds of terrible things we do online, be it uh, in subtle ways with cruelty. When we go online, it's much easier to miss the hurt reactions of people. It's very hard to hurt the feelings of people face to face, heart to heart. But when they're not in front of us and we're, we're subject to the online disinhibition effect, it's much easier to be cruel. And that worries me. And that's another thing that we have to think about in terms of training our children. I'm gonna share with you three concluding stories because I realize I'm out of time. Okay, here's three concluding stories. St <clears throat> story number one, has to do with how do you get kids back? How do you get kids back? Let's say our kids leave. There's fascinating research by a guy named Dr. Bengston. Dr. Bengston looked at four generations of intergeneration, intergenerational transmission. He looked at the answer to the following question. If you want to predict how your great-grandchildren will be religiously compared to the way you are, not your child, not your grandchild, your great-grandchild. What does the research over four generations show? What will be the best predictor if our kids will more or less reflect our religious and spiritual beliefs? And it turns out, looking at over a thousand people, he, and he looked at a number of people who left the religion and came back, the main predictor of whether or not a kid came back was the level of warmth and closeness, emotional closeness that the parents had with the kid, even if he or she left. They might have left the religion. They might have rebelled big time. But to the extent that you could hold on to them in some way, the odds are they'll come back eventually. I'm going to share with you two stories, okay? And then maybe a concluding story. Here's story number one. 
when um, I was um, growing, when I was um, um, growing up, there were um, a couple of kids who we knew left left the religion, and we knew just left. They they rebelled big time. They were massive rebellers. I'm not talking about those ADHD kids I talked about earlier today. These were kids who left. You know. One had intermarried, one had gone into the pornography industry. They, they, they'd done, they, they, they were gone. But everybody else pretty much stayed more or less connected to our way of life, which is a very good track record back then. It was a less complicated world. This is the co-ed school I had gone to when I was a little kid. It's the only school around back then, and that's where I went. So um, we, we um, didn't no, we knew what happened to one of the kids. He eventually came back. But um, two of the kids um, were lost. So we just, nobody really knew quite what happened to them. I'm a scholar in residence in California, in the Shul in Beverly Hills. And I'm staying with one of my old classmates. I'm sitting next to him in Shul. And he's not very psychologically minded, this old classmate. Great businessman, very successful guy. And he points out to me in the back of the shul, one of the guys who left, and he's clearly he's wearing a yarmulke. He has little kids running around. He's running after these little kids. I said, what happened? How did he, I heard he'd gone. He wasn't in any way actively Jewish. I heard he wasn't married to a Jewish woman. What, what's he doing here? He said, I don't know. You could ask him. So I go over to him, and I say, you know, do you remember me? We went to school together years ago. He said, sure, I remember you. He said, I said, what happened? I said, I heard that you were gone. He said, you know something? He said, my father just never gave up on me. He never gave up on me. I left, I rebelled, I did some pretty bad stuff, pretty illegal stuff. He had every right to, to, dis, to, to, to give up on me, and he just stayed by me. You know, he told me he was disapproving, but he was there. It was clear to me he continued to love me, and frankly, he said he wore me down. Fine. Here's where the story gets mystical. I don't blame you if you don't believe this, but it happened. The next day, I'm in the, what had been Fred, uh, Fred Astaire's studio in Beverly Hills, that now was the auditorium of one of the modern Orthodox Yeshiva elementary schools in California, okay? And I'm on the dais giving a parenting talk. The other speaker was Wendy Mogul, the woman who wrote the wonderful parenting book, The Blessing of a Skin Knee. She spoke first, I spoke second. And I'm standing, and there's a pretty big audience. Um, and um, I could swear, as I'm coming to the end of my talk, that I see the second guy in the back of Fred Astaire's old studio. And now I think I'm primed for this. What are the odds of this second guy suddenly showing up the next day? I think I'm hallucinating. I don't want to embarrass myself. But then I think, this really looks like the second guy. I hadn't <laughs> seen him since eighth grade, but it looks like the second guy. I figure I can't miss the opportunity. So I finish the talk, and I scream out, Yossi, Yossi, is that you? And I jump off the day. It's like a madman. I go running back. He looks back. He says, how do you recognize me? And I go over to him. And I say, what are you doing here? He says, I have kids going to this school. I said, but again, I heard. I think he was the pornographer. I don't know, he was either the pornographer or something like that. He said, I heard that you were totally disconnected from our religion. So he smiles and he says, my mother never stopped holding my hand. My mother never stopped holding my hand. That's what Dr. Benson finds with the prodigals. They leave and they come back as long as you figure out a way to still connect.
That's all we have power to do. Story number two. This is the penultimate story for you. Or am I really, oh, I, am I in bad shape here? No. Should I, should I just do this story and we'll end with this story? What? Okay, I think fine. we should spend a few minutes debating whether you're in good shape or not. Yeah, so let's uh, divide into two groups like we did before when we were talking about your peak spiritual moments. Okay, here's story number two. It's a worthwhile story. And then I'll, I'll end with this story. No, and then I'll just be quiet. Okay? So let me do, let me do story number two. Uh, story number two goes like this. This is a story that some of you may have heard, um, um, but it's a, it's a great story that makes me feel good every time I tell it. It goes like this. Um, one day, it's called, the name of this story is the pot-smelling Rosh Yeshiva. That's the name of the story. Okay, this is what happens. There's a, um, there's a, um, another true story, I'm telling you. There's a, um, um, uh, uh, 10th grader in a gray hat yeshiva in the New York City suburbs. And he's a little bit, huh? Gray hat means somewhere between black hat and kippah Okay, so gray hat is like, um, will you say Neri Yisrael is a gray hat yeshiva? Dark gray hat. No, God forbid, that's black hat. I, 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 better, I better go home. Does anyone have, anybody, anybody want to take me to the airport? Okay. Uh, God forbid, God forbid. Um, gray hat would be like, uh, you know, uh, one of those, uh, maybe Rabbi Chait's yeshiva. Is that, where's, uh, let's see here. No? Huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Okay, I take it. Can I still say in your house? Okay, can I still say in your house? Okay. So, um, so please don't ask that again. Okay? Thank you, thank you. Okay, so the kid goes to a gray at yeshiva, and right after Shabbos, he goes to the main street in town, and he goes down the steps of one of the stores and he lights up a joint. This is before, way before these things were legal. Um, and um, just his luck, his rush yeshiva keeps 72 minutes, okay? Even in a gray hat yeshiva, he kept 72 minutes. And he's walking down the same street after a later minion, like you have in your shul. And he smells the unmistakable smell of marijuana. And he knows what it smells like, which is my big question. But anyway, <laughs> he looks down, he looks down, and he, uh, sees, and he sees the kid. He sees uh, one of his 10th graders. They have a zero tolerance policy, they kick the kid out of the yeshiva. Parents, nobody knows about it except for the parents. So the parents call me up and they beg me. They say, look, if he's kicked out, there isn't a yeshiva in America that'll take him. He'll be lost to us. He's been troubled lately. Kids either do pot, either do drugs to feel good or to feel better. This kid was doing it to feel better. He was self-medicating in depression. So they say, please call the Rosh Yeshiva and beg him to take our son back. We'll bring him for therapy, whatever you want, but beg him. So I call the Rosh Yeshiva, I say, look, I said, I'll fax you. Does anybody know what a fax is? You're supposed to call the fax machine. I'll fax you a report once a month showing you that he's clean in terms of drugs. Okay? I'll fax you a report once a month. And on top of that, um, I'll call in, I'll get permission to call in a therapy progress report once a month. 
And he says, Pelkman, he says, okay, he says, you miss one, one fax or one therapy report, he's out of the yeshiva. He only gets one chance. So I start seeing the kid, and what he explains to me is he comes from a family of bumper sticker that's all about learning. That's what they care most about in that family. And his older brothers are brilliant. Going to the top yeshivas in Israel, they have unbelievable intelligence. They're the, the, the top of the top of the top. And he had, as I discovered, an undiagnosed attention deficit, an undiagnosed learning disability. He was very street smart, but he had grown up in um, a home where he was constantly seeing the look of disappointment in his parents' eyes and in his older brother's eyes. And he felt like a failure and he self-medicated with uh, drugs. And I wasn't, I, he was talking to me, he was opening up, but I wasn't really getting to any deep place. After about four or five months, I see I'm not getting anywhere real with him. I say, look, I said, who gets you? There must be somebody in the extended family who understands you. And he says, yeah, I'll tell you exactly who. My father's father, my paternal grandfather, he gets me. So I said, is it okay if I invite him and invite your parents? So we'll blow this up. Let's talk about what's going on. So we invite the grandfather, so a very wealthy, successful guy, supporting the whole family, <coughs> elderly Jew, and he comes comes to my office. He didn't know about the pot-smelling Rosh Hashiva. So I had permission to give him all the background, why I'm seeing his grandson. And he immediately goes from zero to 100, totally losing his temper. And he doesn't even sit down. He gets up for the rest of the session, and he is furious. He turns at his son, turns at his daughter-in-law. And he says, you never told him why this family exists? You never told him the story of our family? I was exactly like him in Europe. I was exactly like him. I was also street smart. I also didn't have the patience that my siblings and nieces and nephews had. But I was street smart enough to know Hitler was gonna kill us all. And I begged my parents, and I begged my siblings, and I begged everybody I knew there, we have to get out of here before it's too late. We have to get out of here. And he said if they believed in shrinks back then, they would have let me to see some guy like this. He gives me a dirty look. He said, he said, um, he said and he starts to cry. And he says, you know what happened. You know what happened, okay? He said, he said, I get out and I start the business that's supporting all of us with my street smarts, same street smarts he has. And I managed to escape, and all of them are gone. My parents, my grandparents, my siblings, my nephews, my nieces, nobody's alive. Nobody, they're all gone. And then he heads for the door of my office, and he turns to his son and daughter-in-law, he says, if you can't make room in your heart for this kind of neshama, the kind of neshama that's the reason why our family exists, I don't have anything to do with any of you. Slams the door of my office, drives away, I never see him again. But what's left in my office, it's three people crying, okay? The mother, the father, and their son. 
and you saw it was the right kind of tears. It was, you saw their bumper stickers expanding to take in this new way of looking at uniqueness and relative strengths. And that souls come in different sizes, like we started with the Jose of Lublin, right? They come in different, in different forms. And his way of connecting, his way of connecting, that's the, the reason why the family exists. We have to pay attention to his unique spark. The end of the story, my wife, she's not here, so I can tell you the end of the story. She hates me telling the end of the story. She says, nobody will believe me. But I'll tell you the truth. This is the end of the story, okay? The end of the story is that was a um, sea change in the way the family dealt with him. He started to feel better. And he gradually got out of yeshiva. You know, they, they stopped reflecting looks of disappointment back to him. And um, he wasn't destined to do what the rest of the family did. So his grandfather takes him to the business, and he was good. The business today is 10 times bigger than it was when he took over. And today, all of his older siblings are working for him. True story, okay? So that may sound a little made up. It happens to be a true story, okay? But that's spirituality. That's what we have to make room for. We have to make room for all the different flavors that our kids come in. So thank you, everybody. Let's have questions and thoughts and comments and whatever. Very good. Ask away, everybody. About your neighbors, about your neighbors. Yeah, let's hear. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so the question is, in, in terms of getting your kids to have fun, you said? Have Kavana. Have Kavana, oh, some interesting. If I was a psychologist, I'd read into that. That was another thing. I wanted to talk about joy a little bit and Simcha, but that's okay. In terms of having, in terms of having, yeah. So the question is, what do you, what do, you do about Kavana? And, um, and, and the answer is, I think that, um, I don't have any terrific answers on Kavana, other than to say, you model, you model, and see if you can make associations for them. The story I was going to end with was um, a story about an association to the Brach of Zokhev Kafufa. So um, anybody wants to hear it, I'll tell it to you privately another time. But it's a great story. But it's about, I have, I have multiple, for every Bracha in Bracha Sushachar, I have a story that brings it associations that have changed what the bracha means for me. Everything from Matir Asurim to Zokhev Kafufim to, and tomorrow, my talk tomorrow, I'm going to end with the story on Kavana for uh, Sim Shalom, which is one of my favorite stories, and that's the way I'll end, God willing. If I remember, I'll probably forget. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's what I'd say. Any, any other questions, or you guys are burned out? Your Pelkovitz dad. It happens to everybody by the end of, by the end of the, by the end of Shabbos. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.